In a world where it seems like there's so much going wrong, I want you to see the people who are spending their lives doing and seeing the good. Welcome to the Doing Good Podcast, where we discuss the stories of people who are changing the world in their own way. I'm your host, Carmen Herbert. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Good. Today on the podcast, we are welcoming Emily Robinson Adams. She is the mother of three children and is a practicing, is okay, tell me, is it appellate attorney? Close, appellate. Appellate. Please tell me what an appellate attorney is because I don't know what it is or how to pronounce it. So, so you have attorneys that work in the district court. That's where you do all the trials. And yes. then if things go wrong, then you do the court of appeals in the Supreme Court. That's the appellate process. So the I appellate. Do court of appeals in the Supreme Court. Yes. You call it an appeal it because they're appealing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fun. So all mostly people are even probably more angry when you get to appealing things that have already been through. <laughs> right. Right. I think we do a lot of criminal defense appeals. And so a lot of our guys are convicted and in prison. And so oh. we're kind of the last, the last hope, the and, last uh, hope. you know, just really oftentimes a lot of it's not necessarily anger, but sadness, just a lot of oh. like, I can't believe I was convicted or, you know, things like that. And then when we do civil cases, sometimes it's a little bit like, I can't believe we're still doing it, but yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, how interesting. Okay. Well, I better read the rest of it and then we can talk more about that. Emily, you received your undergraduate undergraduate degree in linguistics from Brigham Young University and your Juris Doctorate from the University of Minnesota Law School. You have worked for judges on the Minnesota Court of Appeals and the Federal District Court for the District of Minnesota before returning to Utah, and that's where I have a hint of that Minnesotan accent when we were talking before. (laughs) She is a partner at the Appellate Group, a boutique law firm focusing on appeals, and Emily recently released a new book called Divine Quietness, Finding Meaning When Heaven is Silent during a significant faith faith crisis. And that book was published by Desert Book in March of 2023. And I can't wait to talk about that too. So Emily, welcome officially to Doing Good. Thank you, Carmen. I'm so excited to be on. So really quickly, I want to go back to kind of what you said really touched me when you said, okay, well, we're kind of, you know, the last hope for people that have been convicted and they're kind of making that last decision of, do we send them to prison or what the decision that they make for someone's life? Tell me what that's like when you're there and you're knowing that the, these people's lives, like through choices that they made, they're here in court and here they are. And But now it's up to a jury and, and, and a judge to decide and really to the attorneys to present a, a really great case of what this person's life will be like. What is that pressure like when you're sitting there in the courtroom, like knowing, okay, we are all part of this person's life decision like whatever happens now is up to us what kind of pressure is that so it's pretty heavy I mean we don't do the trial so by the time it gets to us our guys have been convicted and they're in prison for the vast majority of them some of them aren't but the vast majority of them are in prison and a lot of them are serving you know five to life sentences or 25 sentences or serving really long prison sentences and big um, big things most of our cases are heavy first degree felonies Okay. Sometimes we have not first degree felonies. Sometimes, sometimes we have you know drug possession or you know something, something that's a little bit smaller, but or theft, you know something that's a little bit smaller. Yeah. Most of our cases are significant first degree felonies, and you know I definitely have the, a wide range of clients. I have some that, you know, some will tell me straight up that they did it, but that they felt that the stuff was botched. You know that the police broke some rules, and so they shouldn't have been convicted. I have some that tell me that they're innocent, and I totally believe them you know, that they were wrongfully convicted. I have some where I just don't know, but it is a really, it's heavy, you know, cause you know that if, if you mess up on appeal, then the likelihood that they'll be able to receive any relief down the road is very, very small. Yeah. So I'm definitely better at dealing with it than I used to be, but it feels really heavy, especially when you have a client that you feel really truly was wrongfully convicted and and the win rate in the Utah Court of Appeals is less than 10%. So that means that the vast majority of appeals you file, you're not going to win. And it's sometimes that can be really discouraging. I think that in our firm, there's we're, there's seven or eight attorneys in our firm. And we go through periods of being like, this is amazing. And periods where we're like, oh, my gosh, this is the worst. Yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes it does get really discouraging. And we're, we're just the attorneys. We're not the ones living the sentence. You know, my name is not at the top of the case, you know. So, so it's not nearly as impactful for us as it is for our clients. But 
Yeah, it can be really discouraging when the win rate is so low and when you have clients that have truly meritorious issues and you feel like you're not making much progress yes. in the appellate courts. And yeah, there's one client, actually, I'll just tell you this and then we can, we can move on if you want. But I have one client that I truly believe was wrongfully convicted. And I've been with him for about five years now. And we got his convictions reversed in the Utah Court of Appeals and then the state appeal to the Utah Supreme Court. And we've been in the Utah Supreme Court for two or three years now. And it involves a really interesting issue that could potentially go up to the United States Supreme Court if the state chooses to go that direction. So we haven't, you know, we, we, he's, he's been in prison this whole time. And so he's just been sitting in prison for five or six years, being wrongfully convicted. And I went and I saw him in prison probably just like two or three months ago just to visit him. And I walked out and I just felt like, is there any justice in the world? Like, what good are we doing if this guy is stuck and I can't do anything to help him? You know, we filed the motions to try to get him released pending appeal, but the judge is denying them. And, you know, it's all these things. So it just sometimes, and then he, you know, he would tell me about kind of what was happening while he was in prison with his family. And it's just tragic. So it's sometimes it feels really tragic and it feels really heavy and it feels really sad. But sometimes you can get the court to side with you and it just feels feels amazing. And it's just like, oh gosh, we've been able to help these people and some clients can receive the justice that they need. And yeah, yes. so it's very, it's a, it's a really interesting job. I never thought I would do. I always wanted to do, well, we'll put it this way. I didn't want to do the trial work. I wanted to do appellate work after law school because it fits my personality a little bit better. Yeah, uh, But I never thought I would do criminal defense stuff. Like that was never on my radar ever in a million years. And I kind of fell into it. And now about I don't know, 75% of my caseload is criminal defense. I would have never, never would have imagined that in law school. I hated criminal no law. Way. I loved criminal procedure, but hated criminal law and just never thought that that would be what I do. But this is oh what we my do. goodness. That is amazing. I think it's really interesting that I, I find that attorneys, especially, it's almost like they get a little taste of what Jesus Christ will do at the end, like being our judge, like, you know, hearing our case and talking with us and and rooting for us and cheering for us and trying to, even if, and of course, I'm not saying that I ever side with murderers and, you know, (laughs) people that have done these really terrible things, but people that have sinned and they've done these really awful, crazy crimes that there, there is still an advocate that, that, that will try and help us. Do you ever do you ever have spiritual experiences when you are in there representing these people and, and, or listening to them and trying to root for them and advocate for them? Right. Oh, that's an excellent question. I have felt once in a while that it's what some, like one time a couple of years ago, I left the prison after a long day of prison visits and I felt just this euphoria. Like this was what I needed to do. This was good. You know, this was good. I don't know. I mean, I, I have felt that it's a that it's a good thing to always advocate for for people, and I generally found my like my principles, my attorney ethics, and things on constitutional principles, and you know that everybody has a right to a fair trial, regardless yeah. of what they've done, yes. uh, or what they've been accused of doing. Everybody has a right to an appeal, regardless of what they've been convicted of, and. So it's not, I guess when I do my attorney life, it's not necessarily in a spiritual sense, but more as of a constitutional sense, but it gives me a lot of practice to see and to see people in a lot of different circumstances that I would never ever approach. Like I'm exposed to an entire community that I would never otherwise be exposed to. It gives me a lot of practice in trying not to judge not judging my clients, not judging the prosecutors or defense attorneys or police officers on the other side that I think might have acted inappropriately at some points. Yeah. Um, it gives me a lot of opportunities to really work on my brain and make sure that I'm in the headspace that I need to be in. So yeah, that's such a good question. I'll have to think about that a little more, but I I don't think I I, I don't normally have, you know, strong spiritual impressions about my cases. I definitely do uh, pray about my cases. And I have this prayer that I say when I'm under a deadline that says <laughs> my part, one of my law partners loves, and it's just help me think fast and type fast. <laughs> yes. Help me think fast and type fast. But yeah, you know, that, that's such an interesting question. I'll have to pay attention more and see if, see if I have maybe more nudgings than I, than I think I do. 
Yeah. Well, I, I just think it's such an interesting line of work. Like, I don't, I don't know that I've ever talked with someone that's, that's an appellate attorney and that, you know, it, it is a very unique niche in, you know, the judicial system. And it's, uh, I think it's, it would be stressful, you know, for me, like, I definitely think you're like, oh, this fit my personality. I'm like, they're definitely, you have to like what you do and, and want to do. And I know there's probably people that think, Oh, how, how could you just talk to people all day and listen, you know, and that's my favorite thing. Like just tell mm-hmm. me your life story. Let's dissect it. Let's talk about all the things I love doing that. And, and that's why I love doing this podcast so much is that people from all walks of life that have all different kinds of careers and life experience are doing good in their corner of the world. And from attorneys to creatives, to stay at home moms, to school teachers, I mean, everyone, like we are all just using the talents and gifts and, 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 and desires like the, the are things that we are interested, our interests to do good. And sometimes when people are like, Oh, I just don't know what talents heavenly father gave me. And I just don't know what, you know, heavenly father really wants me to do because I don't know. It's like, well, what do you like to do? Like what excites you? What is interesting to you? And that you can do so much good just with starting there. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's so, exactly right. So you, Emily, you, so, so you're an attorney and, and, and you do all this stuff, but then speaking of creative, you also are a creative and you have recently written a book and this was so interesting to me. Like I said, in the, in the bio, it's, it's called divine quiet and, or divine quietness. Is it divine quietness? Yes. Finding meaning when heaven is silent. So tell me a little bit, I mean, this is pretty deep. So tell me a little bit about this book And obviously you had to have gone through something where you have experienced heaven being silent during a really important time of your life for this book to come about. So let's start talking about that. (laughs) Right, right. So for about 20 years, I'd struggled with getting answers from God on direct questions. So I I felt the spirit and, you know, of course had experiences with God, but you know, so frequently in our church, we talk about, you know, bringing, involving God in important life decisions, asking God questions. And with the exception of one question, I can't remember any other question that I asked where I got an answer. And it just kind of bugged me, you know, just kind of bugged me. And let me stop you right there. Meaning like an unmistakable direction. Like when you say an answer, what, how did that answer come? Right. So like the stuff I was asking questions about were things like, you know, I've chosen to get married to this, to, to Lucas. Is that the right way to go? I'm going, yes. this is the school. I'm thinking, you know, just kind of like classic stuff you ask when you're a teenager yes. and in your twenties and in your early thirties, these really important things. And I was hoping for like, you know, scripture popping out on the page, a thought to a mind, words coming to, you know, just anything. Not, not I mean, I would have liked Angel Moroni. Yeah, right. <laughs> just anything that seemed very like, yeah, or a feeling, any feeling like, like, yes, this is the right way to go or no, this is the wrong way to go. And I would ask these questions and I've tried a lot of different ways of asking these questions and just with the exception of one, didn't, didn't get anything. So it just kind of, it just bugged me for a long time. And then a couple of years ago when President Nelson gave his conference talk, about needing to be spiritually prepared. And I cannot remember the line off the top of my head, but how essentially in the coming days that we would need to be, under, you know, we need to understand the guiding influence of the Holy Ghost. So it was back in like, oh gosh, I'm going to say it was 2017 when he gave yeah, that talk. Yeah. I thought, you know, I, I, I feel like I feel the spirit. Like, I feel like I can feel the spirit. I feel like I can go to church and I can feel the spirit. I feel when I'm giving talks, you know, I get like little promptings and nudges and things about how to adjust or when I give lessons or things like that. But I just feel like this piece of asking God direct questions and getting answers, that seems like a really important piece of spiritual life that I am not good at. And if the coming days are going to be incredibly confusing, then that seems like a really important piece to have figured out. Yeah. So I decided that I would devise a plan where I would figure out how to get God to answer, you know, one direct question. And then somehow in my mind at the time, it doesn't make sense now, but back then it made a lot of sense that I would like figure out God, like, you know, if I could figure out how to get one answer, then maybe I would have figured out the process, like the recipe. And then I could use that for all future questions. So I decided to ask God about whether the Book of Mormon was true. You know, I'd read it, of course, many, many times. I'd asked that question many, many times. 
I never had gotten an answer. And I thought, you know what, this is a good question to ask because we have our missionaries ask that to converts all the time. I'm not asking God to infringe on anybody's agency or to give me something that, you know, perhaps I don't deserve, you know, like money or anything like that. Like, this just seems like a purely spiritual, like we ask people to do this all the time type of question. So in 2019, I read the book in about six weeks time. And then in the beginning of 2020, excuse me, I sat down and I prayed and I got nothing. And then on top of getting nothing, I felt like my entire spiritual life just went quiet. So the only way I can describe it is I felt like I was in a cast iron pot and the lid was put on and there was just nothing coming in. So it just felt like everything went dark. It felt like the spirit disappeared. It felt like God disappeared. And it caused a really significant faith crisis. I couldn't understand why God would go silent. I couldn't understand why the spirit would disappear or God would disappear. I felt very abandoned, betrayed. It was it didn't work with my current spiritual framework because we're always talking that God won't leave you, the spirit won't leave you, or if the spirit leaves you, it's because you're doing something wrong. It's because you're sick in some way. So it just didn't work with anything that I had taught, I had been taught or, or believed. So it actually caused a pretty significant depression and a pretty significant anxiety. I walked around feeling really incredibly sad. I walked around feeling that God didn't exist, but if he did exist, he was horrible. So then I felt extreme fear about God. And that went on for a lot of months. And at the end of the summer of 2020, I got to a point where I finally was able to start talking with people about it because for a lot of months, I didn't realize what was going on and I couldn't articulate it very well. So I was just kind of in this dark, icky space for a long time. And at the end of the summer, I was finally able to start talking with people and I ended up getting some help. You know, I went and I saw a therapist. I got some medication because when you're just in that dark, icky space, when you're deeply depressed, your brain is just not working as it should. So it's hard to think through what's causing you pain when your brain is just so depressed. So I got some help. And then the beginning of 2021, I, I, I finally was at the point where I was getting help with my depression and my anxiety. I was learning how to manage that, but I still had these pretty significant faith questions. And I said, well, I think that I need to either leave God at this point, or I need to sit down and figure this out. Those, in my mind, those are the two options. So I sat down and I started writing and I said, I'll I'll write so that I can, and I can hopefully in this writing process, I can figure out how I can stay with God, or I'll just decide that I need to leave God. And I write for a living. So writing is something that comes supernaturally to me. And I started writing. I read widely. I read, there wasn't a lot inside of our church at that time that I was aware of that was helpful. And in fact, a lot of the resources I found were quite the opposite. So I kind of delved into, you know, Catholic literature, into Anglican literature. I, you know, read about Buddhism. I mean, I I went far and wide. Episcopalians, I love the Episcopalians. And I read a lot. I read a lot outside of our faith tradition. And then I did find some books inside of our faith tradition that were helpful. And those came later on. So I just started writing. I started compiling what I was reading and thinking about it and, you know, taking out my thoughts. Like, why was this so painful to me? Why was it so painful to feel God be gone? And anyway, after about six months, I had a manuscript and I decided I could stay with God. I had worked through some of the most painful things and had found and was either able to put them in a different framework that worked or was able to just allow them to leave. And I turned it into a desert book and, you know, two years later it was published, but yeah, it was, it was interesting for me to think through these things. And I really loved two frameworks about divine quietness. One was Catholic framework from St. John of the cross where it talks about the dark night of the soul and how in faith development, it's actually really quite normal for people to go through a period where they feel he calls it extreme aridity. So we just feel like God has disappeared. And the purpose of that, according to St. John of the cross is to remove from us all of the incentives for all the benefits we see for following God. So sometimes we'll be like, I am so righteous and therefore I'm blessed. Or I follow God because he blesses me all the time. And according to St. John of the cross, you know, this, the dark night of the soul get rids of all, gets rid of all the benefits. So then you just have to say, well, and why am I following God? And it, it really makes you examine your faith in a different way. And I really liked that because I I really liked that concept. Because I thought, you know, there's definitely some self-righteousness in my life that I need to be thinking of. And 
certainly there's some thoughts that I've been so good at X, Y, and Z, and therefore I am blessed in these ways or, you know, things like that. So I think that that was a really helpful framework for me. And the other one was Wendy Ulrich's book, and she's a member of our church. And she talked about how withdrawal is a super normal part of a human relationship. In marriage relationships, that's actually like a, there's generally four stages for a marriage relationship, four stages of development. Withdrawal is the third stage and it's really normal. And it generally comes after the power struggle stage where, you know, the, the members of the couple don't, you know, they realize that the person they married wasn't the person they thought they married. And, you know, they just begin to see the flaws of their partner and it bugs them to death. And, you know, they have lots of problems. And she says that in, there's been some interesting research done that in something in over, in, in marriages, over 60% of the problems are never solved. So these are long-term successful marriages with the vast majority of problems are never solved. And so at some point you're just like, you know what? I, this is the wrong person. I can't be with this person. You know, I need to go find a new spouse. But if you can get through that stage, then you can get to the acceptance stage where you accept that person as they are with all, even with the 60% that's unresolved. And I really like that framework also of, you know, withdrawal is actually a super normal part of relationships both human and, and possibly divine. So those two frameworks helped me see quietness a little bit differently. I felt like I had to take down most of my framework, if not all of my framework, that I had for understanding God and who God was. And I had a very transactional framework for viewing God. You know, like if I do X, then God has to do Y. You know, it was very transactional, very vending machiney, And I had to get rid of that because it wasn't helpful. For some people, that is a helpful framework, but it wasn't helpful for me. And I ended up with just God is good. Like I took down all this stuff that I thought I knew and I ended up with God is good. And that's kind of the basis for my for my testimony is that God is good. And, and that's all I can say. And that's been, that's been good for me. It's been interesting to go from a place where I felt that I was, I knew a lot and thought I was so solid. Like I thought my faith was so solid to a place of having nothing. And then to a place now of just like, I have a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of nuance. There's very little that I actually know. There's a lot that I hope for. There's a lot I believe in, but very little that I know but it just feels like a better space to be in. So that was long, but that's what the book is about. I have so many thoughts on that, Emily. First of all, I think it is so admirable that you are sharing this. It, 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 I know it's a, it's a difficult and vulnerable thing to talk about, and it just makes me love you so much that you are willing to open up about something that... Re- I mean, really, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and talking with people I know that have been on faith journeys, some have left, some have stayed, your whole life is upended. I mean, your your whole world, everything you think and believe in who you are is turned upside down. And and this fear and uncertainty that comes with that is all-encompassing and overwhelming. So I think it is just... I'm, I'm so glad that you are willing to come on and talk about that and then put it to words and write a book to help other people that are currently navigating or have navigated or have a family member that is going through the same thing. So first of all, thank you for being so open and sharing your heart with us about that. I if, if I can kind of dissect a little about what you were talking about, I'd love to touch on a few things. So first of all, I, I gather that you're a pretty analytical person yes. <laughs> and, and, and think very analytically and are, are probably not super emotional. I mean, not saying you don't have emotions, but are you more of a thinker? You think with your head and logically, like even your process of like, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to break it down versus mm-hmm. like, what do I feel? What feels, am I correct in that assessment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there, definitely there's feelings involved. And there was a long time where I'm like, I'm not feeling anything. Like yeah. that was so hard to feel nothing. But yes, yeah. I think the process more, I'm definitely more of a, these 12 steps, blah, 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 blah. Yes. You know? Yes. And, and I, I would say I'm probably, I, I lead mostly with my heart. So even some things that logically I'm like, let's think through this. I immediately go to an emotional reaction, whether it's with my husband or with my kids or someone I love. And then sometimes 
think back and like, oh, I probably could have handled that differently. <laughs> I'm immediately emotional about, about things instead of, but I, but I have, I think that, that people and women that I love that are more like you, that think about things more, it's, you're very purposeful with, with your interactions with God and with heavenly father. And it, it's not like you're, it, it, you know, too smart for it. It's you're, you're purposeful when you, I don't know if I'm going to make sense when I'm, when I'm saying this, but it's like you, you think through things very thoroughly and you go with God and think, saying, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Here's what I want to come. Here's, here's the outcome I want. I want you to give me an answer and here's the steps I'm going to go to get it. And this is what we're going to do together. And when that didn't happen, I can just imagine that you were like, I don't understand this. Like, I, I don't understand why this isn't happening exactly the way that, that I wanted that. And, and I think it's so beautiful that, that you have come to a conclusion that God is good despite having to go through. I mean, you talk about a several year long process. This wasn't like a couple of weeks or a couple months, even that you were struggling in this divine quietness. It was several years worth. And, and that image of putting the lid on the cauldron, Oh, that just squeezed my heart. And, and, and I know a little bit of what that has felt like. There've been periods in my life where I felt like I really don't understand why I'm not receiving answers or I'm not getting the direction or, or I felt heavenly father very clearly gave me a direction and then left me there (laughs) and said, here you go. No more inspiration now figured. And it's like, wait, now what? And I'm floundering in my 40 year wilderness of, but but you rescued me, but now what, but what? And it's a long time of waiting. So I would love to ask when, when I talked about originally, like how do you receive answers typically before, would there be peace? Would there be comfort? Would you realize that your life was, I'm doing this because my life overall seems better when I'm following these things. Like how did you go about, what was the, what were those answers before? Was it just a general overall feeling of goodness Mm. or or was it more like, I don't know if I'm receiving answers at all. I'm just doing it because I've been taught this way. And so I'm kind of going along with the motions. Yeah. When I asked questions before, I mean, the one answer that I got very loud and clear was that Joseph Smith was a prophet. And it was like, I prayed about it. And then I went into my patriarchal blessing, like not that like an hour later. And very clearly in my patriarchal blessing, it said just for those prophets. So I felt like that was a very clear. Okay. You prayed, showed up later, we're good. There it is. Everything yeah. Else, like life processes, like schooling, kids, family, you know, career, all of those, you know, important life decisions. I would try a lot of ways of asking, like, should, what should I do? This is what I've decided. Tell me if it's wrong. This is what I've decided. Tell me if it's right. You know, and I honestly cannot remember receiving an answer for any of those in any way, shape or form. So what I did is I just went forward. Like I just said, okay, well, I haven't gotten like a clear no and I haven't gotten a clear yes. So I'm just going to assume I haven't gotten any feeling at all. I just assume that this is good. Like going to school is generally good. Uh, getting married to a good guy is generally good. Having kids is generally good. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> like this seems like it's a good thing to do. We're just going to move forward. Yes. So I've had a lot of just, okay, God, like I'm, I tried to bring you into this process. I, I, I did everything I could to bring you into this process. I'm not getting any response about you having any feelings about this process. So I'm just going to do what I think is right. So that was kind of more where I, where I, where I. Okay. So. And, and, and had you during this, which I've, I've heard the quote before, like sometimes God gives red lights, sometimes he gives green lights and sometimes it's perceived with caution. It's yellow. So it sounds like in your life, there was a lot of yellow, like, uh, I'm going to go for it. You know, (laughs) this is what I think. I hope so. And, and there's been, and, and, and I've also heard that, that oftentimes it means that God trusts you to make the right decision. He's like, you got us. Like, I, I don't need to say yes, no, yes, no. My patriarchal blessing, there's a scripture and it's doctrine and covenants and section 58. And it talks about men should be anxiously engaged in a good cause, do many things of their own free will and bring to pass much righteousness for the powers in them, their agents unto themselves. So a lot of times it's like, you know what you should be doing. I don't need to tell you. It's not me that I command in all things. Like I can't tell you all the time, but is it good? Like you said, like you think through it, is it good? Is it, is, am I following? Is it going off of what, you know, some teaching, like, 
obviously it's not like, should I jump off a cliff without, you know, it's like, this is a good thing. And then you proceed with caution, like, okay, I think I'm doing this. But was there ever a point, did you ever meet with like a bishop or state president and, and talk to them about this, your faith journey or crisis and, and get advice and feelings for them? Or were you like, I can do this on my own. I'm going to just, and what did your husband think of all this when you were going through it too? So it's fascinating when I was in that really, that really hard year, I mean, 2020 was a hard year for a lot of us, but anyway, when I was in that hard year, I actually never, the the thought never occurred to me to go to my bishop or my state president, never occurred to me. And I'm not sure why, but it just never occurred to me. I don't know if it's because deep down, I didn't think that anybody had good answers because the church didn't have good answers. Like the stuff on the church website wasn't helpful. You know, like the standard converse acts were not helpful. In fact, they hurt more than anything else. So we just felt like there weren't good answers in our faith religion. So yes, in our faith tradition, I did tell my um, really steady president and she was absolutely lovely, wonderful. And, And it took me a few months, but I told my husband and he was really good at not freaking out. I mean, he was worried for sure, but he was really good at just giving me some space and letting me figure it out. Yeah, and, which I think was a good model for whenever your spouse is going through something hard. I mean, you can, I think internally you might be freaking out, but generally freaking out doesn't help the situation at all. Right. And, you know, there's no amount of, you know, I know God loves you, so why can't you feel it? That doesn't help at all. No, you know? right. Right. And there's no amount of when you're in a space for me where I felt that God was completely absent, just not even like the spirit was completely gone. I'd never felt that before just the complete absence of everything. There's no amount of testimony bearing that helps. It just is hard and it stays. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I did, I did tell Lucas and he was really good about this being, you know, just giving me space, figuring it out. And which is kind of what I need to do anyway. My personality is I just need to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, and then I met with some, there were, there were a few women in my neighborhood actually that once I started being more open about it to this very select group, a very small group. They were wonderful. And the reason why they were wonderful was because they had felt it too. They had felt, one had felt, you know, well, they both felt, you know, absence from God. And they got it. Whereas a lot of people don't get it. You know, a lot of yeah. there were lots that hadn't gotten it. And I, I felt like I wasn't the only defective one. You know, I felt yes. there were other people that had this experience. You had that support. That was great. And what was tricky for me was that I totally get the whole God trusts you move forward sort of thing. And I think that that might be true a lot of times, but it's tricky when we're also counseled to bring God into all of these decisions. Right. So it felt very much like, well, we're trying to bring you in. I want to bring you into this decision. I want God to be part of my life, but then I'm not getting anything. And then when I really want to figure out how to bring God in, because truly there's concerns about the future and, you know, the, you know, there's some terrifying scriptures out there. Like even the most elect will be deceived. Things like that, where you're like, it would be really good where when I'm wondering about things, if I could pray and get a direct answer. Yes. I feel like that's an option. You know, feel like yes. I, if, you know, if there's something that's really troubling me, I could, I could pray and get a direct answer on that. Yes. And when that happened, and so that's one reason why I wanted to create this formula for figuring out God. And right. when it didn't happen, and when instead the answer was complete and utter silence, the way that I felt it, I felt complete and utter absence from God. It was just incredibly painful. And it didn't feel like trust. It felt like betrayal. Yes. You know, and so that's, it was just a really fascinating and hard experience. I mean, now I'm two years removed, three years removed from the from the hardest parts, two years removed from the writing part. And and it's interesting to go back sometimes and read what I wrote and just see how painful it was at the time. And, you know, of course, two years has softened things quite a bit, two, three years has softened things quite a bit, but at yes. the time, it's really, really hard. Yeah. And, you know, I just think that, yeah, sometimes I think maybe God isn't as simple as the explanations that we often give. And sometimes revelation is not as simple as the explanations we we give. And sometimes I found that being open to different frameworks was really helpful for me in figuring it out and then staying with God. So tell me what made you stay? What made you decide? I, I know you ultimately decided God is good and and ultimately what are my intentions for following him? I love that you talk about that when I take away all the blessings and and things that he'll give me. And, and when you ultimately decide, okay, he is good. And what, 
what made you decide to stay? And, and during this process, were you still going to church? Were you still going to the temple? Were you still doing, going through the motions and doing all those things? Or did you very physically take a step back from all of that? And then why did you just choose to stay in the faith? So in 2020, of course, everything was shut down for yeah. a significant amount of time. So the quietness started in January and the temples and church start, were shut down. In That's true. Yeah. And so yes, I was still going to the temple. And in fact, I had a really sweet experience in the temple, right? Right. I think it was like right in March and I was feeling really upset with God. And I'm like, cause I was feeling just this angst. And I was yes. just, so I went to the temple. I'm like, well, maybe I can feel something in the temple. Yes. And I went there and nothing, but there was a temple worker and I was doing Anish stories and she paused in the middle of the Anish story, which is, you know, a scripted prayer. Yeah. And put her hands on my face and said, you are so precious. That's it. And I just felt like, okay, maybe God is aware. Maybe, maybe God isn't terrible. And, and <laughs> and that, that, was, that was pretty awesome. And then, but it developed pretty quickly and church was really hard. General conference was really hard. And so it was actually in a lot of ways a blessing to have COVID to step away because going to church felt, and the thing is nobody in my ward was, well, at that point, nobody knew about it, but the things that I heard over this pulpit was just so different than what I was experiencing that I walked away from church often feeling unworthy and awful. And it's not because anybody said anything terrible to me. It was just that they were saying all these things that I wasn't experiencing. And I just felt that I was just, I must be defective. It was kind of defective was the word. I must be defective. God must be terrible. And I also started having like some massive claustrophobia in the chapel, like where it was really hard to actually sit in the chapel. So it was really good actually to have a little break because I was in Utah. And so our area, the 70s were area authorities were very much like do everything at home. And yeah, yes. So it was good to have a break for a while. And and then I forgot the rest of your question. Anyway, so I, I did go back to church when church started again in November. I think we started again in like November of that year. I was actually a really study teacher and I love that calling. I love that calling. And my really study president knew that I was struggling and she still asked me to teach. And it ended up being quite a blessing because I would take these conference talks. One of my favorite experiences was that I was assigned a conference talk from conference that I absolutely disliked. It was my least favorite conference talk. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> right. It was about being of good cheer. And oh, brother. Like, right. And I'm like, I can't be of good cheer. I'm no. Just like, no, exactly. If anybody tells me to be of good cheer, I just want to punch him in the head. Like, come on. <laughs> and, um, and so it was really good for me to engage with these conference talks, many of which were very hard for me. Yeah. And to find things that I could teach authentically. I'm a very much a fan of you teach in a way that is, you don't just get up and talk. Like you need no. to relate to the talk. You need to, you need to teach from an authentic place. Your life experience. Yeah. Right. So I had to get myself to a place where I could teach authentically from these talks and the be of good cheer one, you know, it was based on King James English. And so I went and looked at other versions of it. And, you know, a lot of people, and I just preferred the more modern day translations of the phrase be of good cheer. And so, and it needs to have courage. So I'm like, I can't be happy right now. Like, or I, I, it's really hard. We'll say it's really hard to be happy right now, but I can certainly have courage. Honestly, like going forward every day is an act of courage. So uh, teaching that talk and finding the courage piece was really helpful. And, you know, just with all those talks, it was actually really, I taught once a month and it was really helpful to have a talk and to say, okay, now I need to engage with this talk that was really hard for me to listen to. And let's see what I can find and, and see how I can teach it in an authentic way. So that was really good for me. What was the rest of your question? So yeah, we did do church, Why? did do, I forgot Yes, well, no. First part of your question. <laughs> well, why you? Why? Oh, why just? That's probably the most important. Yes, to stay. Yeah. yeah. So while I was in that really hard year, there was a strong temptation to rewrite my history and to forget. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I certainly have felt God at certain points in my life, and just undeniable, you know, just something outside of me working on me, type of events. And there haven't been many, and it hasn't been like they, they haven't been dramatic in, you know, like no angels are appearing, but certainly events where I'm like, I have felt this love for people that I'd never felt before that didn't come from me or 
I felt this conviction that, you know, that didn't come from me. Yeah. You know, just a few of those things where I, when I was very tempted when I was in my process to say, okay, God doesn't exist. But if God doesn't exist, then where did all of these other, where did these experiences come from? Yep. And so I had to take a step back with that. And then I got to, well, God must be terrible and arbitrary, you know? And I just had this, this just out of the blue experience a couple months. Well, I don't know. When was it? But it was while I was writing. So within that first six months that I felt that God was good. And it just came out of nowhere. And it was just this overwhelming God is good. That goodness comes from somewhere and that somewhere is God. And that is what kept me here. And that's formed the basis for what I have left, which is God is good. God is good. So that's that's it. And, you know, for me, it was never a question of whether or not to leave the church. The church was completely irrelevant to my decisions because the church is my my faith heritage. So if I chose to stay with God, then the church makes the most sense to me. I wouldn't stay with God and become a Catholic. Although for a while I was reading so much Catholic literature that my husband was like, are you going to become a Catholic? (laughs) They just have a lot of wisdom. They have thousands of years of, you know, wisdom that we don't have. But but yeah, so it was never a question of whether to stay in the church or not. It was always a question of whether to stay with God or not. And if I stayed with God, I would stay with the church. And if I didn't stay with God, then the church no longer was relevant and everything just went out the window. So that was how it worked in my brain. It might not make sense to other people, but that's how it worked with my No, I, that, that makes, I've often thought that too. Like if, if, where would I go? If, if, if I wasn't here, where, where would I go? And and because you you were looking at Episcopalian and, and Catholicism and all these other faith groups and religions that you were able to see very clearly, like, w- would they have something better to offer me? Would would there be, you know, because it, it, do you do a lateral move or do you just say, I'm leaving? We're done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've, I've, I've often thought the same thing when I'm thinking through things, when I, when I'm getting analytical and getting out of my emotional state, sometimes like if I were to really think through this, like, is there good and evil? Yes, there is. So does that come from somewhere? And and I can honestly say that I definitely feel like I know there's evil in the world. And, and there's, there's a, if there's a, if there's a founder of all evil and there's a father of all lies, there has to be a father of goodness and light and mercy and love there has to be. So if there is good and evil and then did we just make it up as ma- as man, you know, like this, this is something you should do. Like why were we influenced in some way? So if, if it was because it comes from a power and that power is God, then you can kind of keep going back to that. God is good, which means he does love me, which means th- there's a purpose for things and I don't understand it now. And I just think Emily, it, I love that you use the word courage. It was, it's so brave for friends that are listening out there and are struggling to just keep going and keep struggling and keep trying. It is so brave to do that, to keep coming to church, to keep going to the temple, even when you're like, I don't know. I don't know right now. And and even if you know at one point you felt it and, and you do believe it's true, it's it's almost it's almost hard to be like, but then where did you go? But then why aren't you here instead of, well, I never really knew, or I never really had a testimony. If you did and you knew, and then you, and then you feel like God has abandoned you, that is really hard and so brave of you to then say, but, and I don't know why it feels silent, but I'm going to keep sitting in this silence with you and waiting either until you come back or until I understand you better. That is so brave of you. And there's a talk by Elder Holland and he talks about sunshine in my soul and he kind of jokes about that. And he's like, you just want to like throw those buckets of sunshine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like, you're like, there's not sunshine in my soul today. There's nothing's glorious and bright. You know, the people that are scattered sunshine and he Mm -hmm. like makes fun of that. Like, no, there are, I'm not feeling that right now. And, and, and to keep, to keep going and, and to keep coming back and to put in the effort to finding out instead of giving up and saying, whatever I'm out, you were like, I'm going to dig deeper and try harder and sit in this and, and, and wait for heavenly father. And I think everyone, I feel so, so strongly that everyone needs someone to relate to. And, and when you said I was hearing from the, from the pulpits, like no one's saying mean or insensitive or things, but you're just like, I don't relate to you. And it's like, when I read my scriptures, I feel so hot. And you're like, I don't. And I love coming to church because I feel so peaceful. Every time I walk in, you're like, 
I feel like I'm going to die and I'm going to have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. You know, that, and, and Elder Bednar recently gave a quote that said, we need to be messier from our pulpits. And I love that. I love that so I much. loved it. And it's like, we need people like you that, that stand up and not that, not that bring people down or are negative, but that are authentic and real. And you're like, I've really struggled the last couple of years. And, and, and I, 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 you know, you talk about needing prayers and and wanting to relate to people. And even just if there's someone in the audience that is wondering where God is, I'm here with you. We can get through it together. Do you know how much you would probably get handfuls of people that come up to you afterwards and say, me too, me too. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I just feel like we all need someone to relate to. And some people will understand that and some people won't, but but they can give you love and compassion and and sympathy as you're going through that. And others will give you empathy. Like those two women in your neighborhood, like, Oh, we've been there too. We all need someone to relate to. And if we can have the courage to be a little messier from our pulpits and not, you know, sharing life stories or anything, but just being open and real and saying, man, this is hard for me. We're all in this together. Let's help. This is what I could use help with. Or if there's someone out there that needs help, I'm here for you. Oh, how, how much more accepted and loved and what we all feel in the chapels. Oh, I just love that. I love the idea of being messier from the pulpit. And I think you're, it's so true that we need people to relate to. I think it, it makes a huge difference when you feel that someone that you're not alone. Yes. The first, I mean, I remember finding two books kind of earlier on that I finally was like, Oh my gosh. And they were both women. These women get it. Like, yes, you know, and it's amazing because suddenly you feel like you can be a part of this gospel, this church community, and that you're needed and that you're not just this weird person having an experience that's not accepted that we just want to push to the side. So it is wonderful when you can relate to people. And I just love the idea of being messy from the pulpit. And in so many ways, it's just being messy is just acknowledging reality. Reality is messy. And if we can just acknowledge reality in the messiness that it is and find God in it, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. Well, and I often think about scripture stories like Enos, you know, when he was going into the wilderness to hunt beasts and he was thinking about what his dad told him. It, I'm, I'm sure, you know, like when Moroni and when they were all, when they were compiling the Book of Mormon and he was editing everything, it was like, okay, how do I condense this five-year struggle into five verses that will get the story across but fit on these plates? And I wonder if, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, he prayed, then he got an answer. He prayed, he got an answer. That's what we see in the Book of Mormon. But so often it's like years later, or it's a huge process. And Alma the Younger, like he grew up his whole life opposing the church. And and then the angel comes, but everything that led up to that is very condensed. And so sometimes it, it it's helped me to remember when Enos is like, I'll tell you about the wrestle I had before God. That wasn't just one day. He had been struggling for a long time. And then this day he finally was like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to pray all night. And that's what he did. But the wrestle was long before that. And, and, and sometimes it's hard to read and be like, see, he got an answer. He got an answer, but like, Oh, but wait, this is condensed. This is years worth like condensed into these two verses. And so it, it's, it might be helpful to know and, and, and to remember that even like prophets and, and, and amazing men have been through this wrestle and this struggle. And, you know, Joseph Smith, even when he was in Liberty jail and he's like, where, are you? And it had been months. He prayed about it and wrote the revelation about it, but it was a long time when long he's like struggle. a long struggle and, and, oh, and how hopeful to know, like, I, I, I love what you said about St. Mark. What did you say on the cross from the cross? With oh, St. John, St. John of the cross, St. John of the cross, St. John of the cross, that he, that it was this, everyone goes through this period of, of this divine quiet and, and, and this, you know, okay. It, and and maybe it's a way for heavenly father to, I don't know, it, is it a testing period? You know, even Jesus Christ on the crosses, you know, cried out, why is thou forsaken me? Like he withdrew his spirit from the savior himself. So I don't know that, that there's any kind of hope in knowing that it's, it is a universal thing. I just don't think we all talk about that messy part enough. And I think it's so wonderful and great that you are and you have and, and remind people again, where, where can they go to read more about it, to check out your book, to receive that hope and, and reassurance from, from you. 
Well, thank you, Carmen. That's just so kind. So kind. They can get it. It's available on Desert Book and Amazon. There's an audible version or an audio book that I read, which was and that's available on bookshelf plus desert bookshelf plus and okay. yeah and the book i mean i i hope that the book is helpful for people I, I, it doesn't there's no there's no answers at the end like i still have no idea how to receive direct or answers from god on direct questions i that's still something that i i don't know and and it doesn't you know, I, I, there's no definitive, like, this is what quietness means. I think there's sure. so many ways to think about it. And hopefully there's something in there that can resonate with people who are struggling with it or or people who know people who are struggling with it. Hopefully it can just be a resource at the beginning of the journey. I'm so grateful that there's something like this out there that, that people can read and listen to and that you were open enough and, and, and brave enough to share that your story with us. And I love that you, that you're like, Hey, I still, it's not like, and now I'm good. You know, it's like, it's, we're just, we're all work in progress until we, and, and until we meet our savior again, like we're all a work in progress and, and it's okay to remember that we can go through the valleys and up the mountains and down the valleys and up the mountains throughout our whole life. And, and the point is, is just to, to stay on, stay on the path through mm-hmm. the ups and downs stay there. And I think our, the greatest hope is that it will be worth it in the end. Right. That's right. Oh, that's well said, Carmen. That's well said. We just keep moving with hope, moving Moving with hope, with hope. And, and I love, I sometimes hope is, is a little bit easier to grasp than faith. Sometimes hope is, is, is a little bit easier to say, this is what I hope for. And I don't know. And that's okay. Like that is, that is a, a, a beautiful divine quake trait, faith, hope, and charity. And, and I think sometimes hope it's like, gets a bad rap. Like, Oh, you just hope for that. And no, that, that is a good. good. Yeah. Hope Hope is good. Good. Hope is good. Let's hold on to hope. Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, for sharing your story with us and for all the good you are doing. Oh, thank you, Carmen. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me on. And I'm so excited to tell you about an amazing app that my whole family loves. It's called Our Turtle House, and it's full of literally thousands of hours of full-length talks, just like the old talk on CDs or talk on tapes, from some of your favorite Latter-day Saint speakers like John By the Way, Mick Johnson, Hank Smith, me, and a ton more. Plus, there's podcasts, firesides, devotionals, come follow me resources, and entertaining content your whole family will enjoy truly all in one little app and you can use promo code doing good all one word at checkout and you get a full month free so check it out and sign up at ourturtlehouse.com see you soon